Hello and happy Thanksgiving. As always, I would like to give a big thanks to Anchor for giving me a simple tool to record and express my podcast, my ideas, and my thoughts. Thank you, Anchor, sponsored by Spotify. If you'd like to use it, check it out at anchor.fm. Hello there. It's me, possibly or possibly not, Colin Farrell. You don't know because you can't see me. When times are tough and I'm feeling down, I look for a podcast that I can truly appreciate that will help calm my nerves. And that is Lars Cast. He interviews all types of people on all types of things. Listen to it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever podcasts are found. Lars Cast. He is also on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you very much. Hey, Bill Bob, now that I got what that electricity in my house, what should I do with my kids? I also got them that their internet. Well, I'll tell you, Bobby, what you ought to do is head on over to YouTube and check out Mr. Sid's Classroom. It's the only thing I watch. Fun songs and educational things, and it's a good time. Your kids are going to love it, and I love it too. That's Mr. Sid's Classroom over on YouTube. Happy Thanksgiving to all those people out there. Don't forget to show what you're thankful for by downloading the latest album by Teenage Devil Dolls, available on Bandcamp. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Deep Note. Before starting, I wanted to make a comment. The subject of racism and equality has been a hard-won and long-term battle throughout the United States. On the subject of music and in the industry particularly, we know that inequality has been a thorn in the side of that industry. In this next conversation, we're going to talk about that and bring up a couple of individuals. Uh, we know that Brown versus the Board of Education was still young at this time. Uh, jazz in its heyday through the 50s and 60s racism was still prominent. There are a couple individuals we'll be talking about who fought against that. That'd be Dave Brubeck and the Dave Brubeck Quartet and Benny Goodman. We'll be specifically talking about Dave Brubeck's album Time Out and some of his influence and some of his viewpoints concerning equality. I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but I do think it's important to discuss and take a hard look at. Thank you. All right, good. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Deep Note. I think this is episode five or six. Five. That's right. I'm very excited about this one. Um, I have with me today a very, very special guest, somebody who I've known the majority of my life. In fact, the entirety of my life, I have my father, Wally Stokes. (laughs) Hello, Sam. Hello, Wally. Thank you for joining us. I'm going to go ahead and call you dad, if that's okay. Yeah, you can call me Dad, Wally, Wallace, Sir, Your Highness. I I answer to all. Malige. Yes, yes, <laughs> I am your liege. All right, good. Uh, so I'm really excited to have you with me because not only do you have a wealth of experience and uh, life stories to share, you have an incredible taste in music. You've influenced my taste in music. Uh, you introduced mm-hmm. me to blues and jazz, um, but I think you've also lived somewhat of a unique life 
having traveled as much as you did, the things you've experienced. And I want to hear a little bit about that along with uh, oh. the way music has influenced you. Well, okay. Um, could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Give us, you know, the anywhere between a five minute and a two hour biography of, <laughs> of your life and history. <laughs> well, it was a dark and stormy night <laughs> in East Texas. Yeah. yeah. Well, as you know, uh, Texas born and raised. Um, and as you have previously mentioned, uh, traveled extensively, um, living abroad for a couple of years and traveled throughout Europe and Russia and most of North America, Canada, um, with little dips into Mexico, actually owned a business in Mexico for a while. Hmm. Um, the last 25 years, <clears throat> which pardon me, <clears throat> I've since retired from, <clears throat> I spent as a, uh, small business consultant helping out small business practitioners, primarily healthcare, with how to hire, how to fire, uh, how to market without a budget, customer service, um, things of that nature, wow. things that, that they don't actually teach in any healthcare schools or in any business schools. Right. So those things are just not taught. In business school, they teach you how to balance your books. <clears throat> They don't teach you what to do when your front desk is sobbing because her boyfriend just cheated on her. Sure. Right? So, yeah. <laughs> you know. Or the manager is trying to tear down the business. And Well, yes, I was getting to that. Or how to sort out when your office manager is actually stealing from you. There's that. Because <clears throat> I, I, that was one of my specialties was my ability to go in and <clears throat> uh, find embezzlement. Oh, wow. Yeah. <clears throat> However... Um, after 25 years of that, I have to say it got rather boring. So I retired. Sure. And then now currently, as you know, um, helping to produce a YouTube channel for parents, which will probably start, um, airing in January. Okay. I'm so, definitely looking forward to that. What is the name of that channel going to be? It's going to be real world parenting. And uh, the star of the channel is a very, very close friend of mine who has 50,000 hours uh, plus of tutoring. Wow. Everything from orphans in Korea to, you know, uh, gangbangers in Compton to Silicon Valley's Silver Spoon Brats, mm -hmm. as well as not only being an exceptional parent, but also exceptional grandparents. So she has seen and done it all. That's and uh, so, you know, we're going to attempt to give parents out there some relief, some direction to go in. I'm looking um, forward to that. That's going to be amazing. Yeah. yeah. And in addition to that, we'll be getting into the subject of education. So prior to that 25 years, as you know, I've done everything. I literally have worked construction to do door-to-door -door sales, to selling high-end cars, um, you know. Mm -hmm. marketing, advertising, just basically wherever the wind blew me. So you're not, you're not really a jack of all trades. You're, you're a master of all trades. I, I would say I'm an exceptional salesperson. Mm -hmm. Okay. When I put my mind to it. Uh, but yeah. Right. Fantastic. 
Yeah. So um, you gave me a little bit of a biography of yourself, and there's yeah. there's a couple points here. I guess we'll start with, which is early childhood. Um, you entered and I guess studied music as a young boy, and then also had some physical issues that you ran into. Okay, so so we got to early childhood, as you know. Most kids, when they're very young, they make a decision as to what they want to do in life, right? Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> when I was five or six. Uh, we were living in Albuquerque and I had a uncle who was a captain in the air force base. So I think it's Kirkland, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Kirkland air force base. And a couple of times, you know, a month, he would actually take us out to the air force base and we could sit and watch at dusk the jets take off. Wow. Which actually was pretty astounding because when they take off at dusk and they kick in their afterburners and you can see the flame shooting out the tail, you can imagine for a six-year-old that was like, oh, <laughs> I want to yeah. do that. I, that's me. I could see myself in that in the cockpit of that jet. Of course, I didn't understand their purpose. Right. right? I did not know that they were weapons of mass destruction. I was just a five or six-year-old and going, that's cool. Yeah, you see a plane flying by and you want to do that too. Yeah. Yeah. So about a year later, I happened to mention this to my uncle and he said, oh, well, you don't qualify. You have asthma because I had asthma from birth, mm-hmm. which was extremely disappointing. Right. Right. <clears throat> and and if that meant I couldn't fly fighter jets, I said, oh, I could I, I could fly transport or something. Right. Um, and then when I was nine. I found that I needed glasses and then to fly anything in the military, you have to have at least 20, 20 vision. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so all my hopes and dreams were crushed, crushed like a great bit of wine factory. Right. Right. <clears throat> so there I am just I, now I'm your typical, like nine, 10 year old kid, you know, the ups and downs of life, blah, 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 blah. By the way, we also went, I went to 13 different schools in 12 years because we moved a lot. Mm-hmm. And then when I was 11, two things happened. I got, well, three things happened. My childhood asthma went away. Mm-hmm. I had a experience where I actually understood the nature of man. In other words, I was able to distinguish myself as being completely separate from my body. Wow. And observe my existence as a spiritual being. And this was at 11 years old? This is at 11. Wow. Right? But that gave me a problem. Because I'm sure, as you can imagine, I understand the nature of man. Try to communicate that to your fellow 11-year-olds. Right. (laughs) They're like, I mean, drugs weren't popular back then, but their response would have been, what are you smoking? And why aren't you sharing? And why aren't you sharing, right? (laughs) In fact, the only person that understood it was my mother, who had the same experience Mm. and I didn't live with her full time. So, you know, you tend to sort of withdraw, right? Because you have this, you have this vision, this understanding and nobody understands it. But then a thing happened, this thing happened. So I'm watching this movie in black and white. And by the way, it's not a particularly good movie. The acting is really bad. Mm -hmm. It's called the Benny Goodman story. Right. Right. And um, 
There is one good actress in it, Donna Reed, uh, but Benny Goodman is played by Steve Allen, who was a very, very funny comedian and also an incredible musician, mm -hmm. and but just a terrible actor. First half of the movie is incredibly boring. But then, then he starts to play his compositions, his jazz compositions, what they call swing, big band right. music. And my head exploded. I went, what? What is this? This is magic. <laughs> That's right. Well, Benny Goodman did, was it Chin Chin Chin? Uh, no, Sing 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 was his sing, signature sing, sing, song. Sing. Yeah. That's right. But there was a point in the movie, and this is what's really important to me. He was a shy retired, re not retarded, but a shy retired. In fact, he looked like an accountant in real life, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And he he's like falling for this gal. And he cannot communicate. And there's a point in the movie where he plays a song to her and communicates his feelings with the song. Wow. And at that point, I went, oh, oh, look at that. Isn't that flipping incredible? You can do that. Mm. You can take music. And you can communicate things, especially things that you might not be otherwise able to communicate. Right. Right. Yeah. You can communicate feelings and sensations and, and sunrises and sunsets and affection, blah, 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 blah. So I went home, convinced my dad to buy me a student clarinet. So because back then, every school in America had a music department and proceeded to learn how to play music. Mm -hmm. And we're going to put that in quotes because the next three to four years were incredibly frustrating. As I told you once, when the gods of talent walked through the house, I was standing behind the door. Right. <laughs> okay. Mind you, I wish to say, except for your photography. But, yeah. Well, we'll get... your, your okay. I just want to say your photography is exceptional. We can get to that later, but okay. yeah. So I, I quit. I, I, I stopped. I mean, I just, I couldn't, you know, I could never advance in a school band. You know, you're arranged by chairs and parts, and uh, I could never get beyond last chair, third part. <laughs> okay. Right. And anybody that's ever played in a school band knows what that means. Yeah. So I quit. <clears throat> and now I'm just your standard run-of-the-mill teenager with an exceptional awareness of life that again, I cannot communicate. And let's roll forward to about 16, 17. Mm -hmm. I'm now living with my mother in Dallas. And as, as you know, my mother was a classical trained pianist and she had introduced me to Bach and, and, and uh, jazz. And uh, whereas my dad wasn't a musician, but <clears throat> thank goodness he introduced me to dance music and uh, country and, um, some rockabilly, right? <clears throat> so we're I'm sitting in, in this in our apartment one day in in, in uh, East Dallas in, in Dallas, and she's got a whole bunch of albums, record albums, and I pull out this album called Time Out. Oh yeah, Dave Dave Brubeck Quartet, and I go, what's this? I put it on the record player and the first cut comes on 
Blue Rondo a la Turk. Mm-hmm. And boom. Once again, my life has purpose. <clears throat> I listened to Paul Desmond, the alpha sax player, and I went, oh, my God. This is magic. Right. And by the way, if you ever saw a picture of Paul Desmond and Dave Brubeck, they look like CPAs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they do. <laughs> right. So here again is this like, oh my goodness. And I, by the way, think that Blue Rondo a la Turk is the better, <clears throat> is the best piece of music on the record. Mm-hmm. Even though uh, Take Five, Take Five was extraordinary. I mean, it was the only jazz song that I think ever got to the Billboard 100, you know, for yeah. all time. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, Dave Rubeck was man of the year for Time Magazine, you know, blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> but it gets better. So I go to the music department. I say, I want to learn how to play alto sax. And the music instructor says, well, we don't have an alto sax. We have several tenor saxophones. All you have to do is just buy your own mouthpiece and reads. I went, oh, I can do that, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, as, as you know, I mean, I started working when I was nine, so I had money. <clears throat> uh, so I go buy mouthpiece and reads and I come back and I'm ready for my first lesson. And he says, what, what made you want to learn how to play the alto saxophone? I told him about the record. Right. He goes, oh. Have you heard John Coltrane? Oh, yeah. Who's that? And he says, oh, my God, son. (laughs) (laughs) He says, you need to John, you listen to John Coltrane. You need to listen to Charlie Parker. And I, so my mother had some records. And so I'm listening to these guys. And the next thing you know, I'm listening to Miles Davis. And I'm going, oh, my God, this is like, this is magic. This is not of this earth, right? Because all my friends are, are, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, there's a lot of rock and roll I like, but they're like in this tunnel vision, right? Mm-hmm. So when you listen to Miles, then you, and, and Coltrane, uh you have to then listen to other like pianists like Bill Evans and you have to listen to, uh, I don't care for him that much, but uh, Dizzy Gillespie and uh, all these incredible artists. And then when you listen to Brubeck, you've got to listen, you end up finding, you know, Stan Getz and people like that. And I discovered that the beauty of jazz, unlike other genres of music, is that these guys interchanged and that nobody had any issues with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Coltrane might sit in with Miles for one record and then he goes off and does his own thing. And then it might be Charlie Parker that sits in for the next record. Right. So the beauty of that is that these guys are experiencing other people's genius. And they're experiencing other people's compositions. That makes sense. Right? And Absolutely. so they they are they are expanding. And um, you know, unfortunately it didn't take long for me to figure out that 
the gods of talent had come back through the house and took away what little I had. Oh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, uh, thus ended my, almost ended my career as a musician. I had, um, one other very short stint, which I don't think I've ever told you about. Um, before I moved to Dallas and had that experience, <clears throat> so I had two friends, and this is in El Paso. I had two friends in high school, and one of them, his younger brother, was one of those incredibly talented, gifted people. He could pick up a guitar and listen to a record, and he could pick out the lead, the rhythm, and the bass, and then the drums. Oh, yeah. Kid couldn't read music, but just unbelievable. Yeah, I, I admire people like that, but they also make me angry. <laughs> well, I understand. <laughs> so he had multiple instruments and he said, oh, let's make a band and then we can play for parties, high school parties and get all the girls. Of course. So we went, oh, OK. So he said, here, you're you can play the bass. And so he taught his brother and me four songs. I don't remember what they were, they, but four songs that had simple bass lines. We did one party where we played those four songs on repeat. <laughs> <laughs> and I quickly discovered that the bass player didn't get the chicks. Sadly, no. The lead singer and the lead guitarist got the chicks. That's right. So <laughs> the bassist and the drummer packed everything up. They, they pack everything up. <laughs> So between that and, and inability to learn how to play the saxophone, that was sort of the end of my musical career, but it led, it was the beginning of a, I don't know, like a musical journey, shall we say? Well, first off, I want to just interject regarding basis packing everything up. The one exception to the rule is Les Claypool. He, mm. Yeah. He is the, you know, maybe him and uh, Jaco Pistorius, but. Well, what about Paul McCartney? Oh, fair. Well, okay. I could, I could give or take Paul. He's, he's great. No doubt. But yeah. I don't think he holds a candle to those two. No, um, te technically he doesn't, but I'm just saying he's a bass player that gets the girls. Absolutely. Yeah, this is very true. Yeah. And Jack um, Bruce cream. Anyway, go ahead. Oh yeah. No, good point. Yeah. So tell me about that. Tell me about your foray into the professional realm of music and some of well, your experiences. Cause I think, I think it's unique. You had the opportunity to play or not play, but, work with Czech Korea and, you know, talk to some legends. I did. But before that, I need to tell you about the other events that were enlightening for me musically. Mm -hmm. Is that okay? I'm ready. All right. So as you know, when I got out of high school, I went to live in England for two years for like a, a, a paid internship. Yes. Okay. And, um, you know, working basically six days a week. I mean, there wasn't any music in the environment that I could easily go to. I snuck up to London once to go to a jazz club called Ronnie Scott's. It's like a very famous jazz club. Um, but other than that music, just, you know, cause you're busy and I didn't have enough money to go to concerts. Right. But what did happen was that one of the pubs in town, uh, two weekends a month had on a Saturday night, they had a, a music night. They had like this room in the back. And people would come in and play and they didn't get paid to play. Right. Um, they might've got a percentage of the bar or something. I'm not sure. 
So the first night I go, I'm invited by a local kid in town, a local guy that I knew named Mick. And I go to the first night and Mick and two or three other people sit down and they start playing American blues. And I'm like, what? Where'd this music come from? Mm-hmm. And, and Mick literally just laughed. He said, dude, this is American music. This is like, <laughs> you know, you don't know about this. Because in the 60s, blues music was not played on radios in America. Right. Just wasn't. And it was incredible. Okay. And then a couple of m- music nights later, it's like folk night. I mean, eh, folk night. Ugh. Okay. Kingston Trio. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> no. This is a, there's a group of Irish folk singers followed by a group of American folk singers. And what the Americans are playing is basically bluegrass. It wasn't called bluegrass. I think it might have been. American roots music, which sounded very similar to Irish roots music. Hmm. So here I got introduced to basically American roots music, which, which bluegrass come from the Appalachian Mountains, as you know, which incidentally was heavily um, populated by Scots and people from Northumberland and via Ireland. Right. Right. And they yeah. came in with the guitars and the Italian mandolins, blah, 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 and stole the banjo from the black people living there. Right. Right. And then blues, as you know, <clears throat> came from out of the gospel scene. That's right. Right. Mm-hmm. Which was, you know, and the, the, the blacks who were brought over from Africa brought in the banjo and they brought in drums and a certain kind of rhythm. Right. Right. But this is American roots music and, and nobody in America knew about it. But the Brits did. Because I later found out that literally every single British band at the time was listening to Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and John Lee Hooker, Big Bill Bruzy. They all knew who Sister Rosetta Thorpe was, who was the godmother of blues and rock and roll. Oh, yeah. Who also influenced Elvis, by the way. That's right. Nobody in America knew this. It was interesting. It was fascinating, you know, because that 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 later on in life, recently I invested and investigated that. But the other thing that the other thing that happened. So this 1968 and this is still the era of um, what they call pirate radios. Mm -hmm. The BBC wouldn't play certain rock and roll. So there were these radio stations uh, either in Luxembourg or on on ships in the English channel mm-hmm. that would, that would play rock and roll that the BBC considered too suggestive. Right. Okay. <clears throat> and I think I, before I left, I think I'd heard a little Rolling Stones, not much. I mean, paint it black or get off my cloud. Cause I also, <clears throat> I also listened to uh, Wolfman Jack broadcasting out of Mexico, you know? Yeah. But you'd never hear it on the BBC or if, if you got to watch top of the pops, a TV show, it was always like Petula Clark or, uh, I don't know, Jerry and the Pacemakers who were mild, milk toast, you know. <laughs> you would never hear the stones. So I'm sitting in this cafe in Plymouth or Portsmouth, chatting up this blonde English girl. 
and Jumping Jack Flash comes on over the radio. Oh, wow. I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What? Where has this been? Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And so, well, you couldn't hear it in England. Right. And I don't even know if it was being played in America. You know? Yeah. So, and again, it was only because of the pirate radio stations that you'd hear it. I mean, you would... You know, you hear the animals on pirate radio station. You know, you wouldn't hear them on the BBC. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was like a reintroduction. So the British invasion was actually just the coming home. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, so when I came back, I came back two years later. Um, I actually did. I started going to a lot of rock and roll concerts, a lot. <clears throat> as much as I dislike Los Angeles, one of the beauties of Los Angeles in the late 60s was that you could go to a concert at the Hollywood Bowl on a Saturday night, and on Sunday there would be a free concert in the park the next day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I, I took a girlfriend to go hear Janis Joplin, and the next day we went and heard the movie Blues and Hot Tuna live, you know. Wow. What um, an experience. Oh, yeah, it, it was. So, you know, I'm getting my, but at the same time, there was so many jazz joints, you know, I mean, I right. took that <clears throat> 1971, I think, um, same girlfriend I took to hear Janis Joplin. She said, oh, I hate jazz because her concept of jazz was Dixieland jazz, which is like, eh, passable. Well, no, okay, you hate jazz, right? So in the meantime, now I've been, I've been playing cards and drinking with jazz musicians and blues musicians, and I mean, world class, you know. Oh yeah. And um, I was playing cards with the bass player for this uh, Hungarian guitarist, uh, Gabor Zabo, and his bass player tells me, "Oh, Miles is going to be playing at this place called Shelley's Manhole." Mm-hmm. I can get you tickets. Okay, great. <clears throat> so I'm, I take her, <clears throat> but I don't tell her who we're seeing. <clears throat> and we're in line and the bass player's behind us. <clears throat> and he's talking to me and I'm kind of like, shut up. Because <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> she'll leave. Right. Even though I drove her home, <laughs> she'll take the bus home if she thinks this is jazz. <clears throat> right. So we sit down. And, you know, Miles' bands come on and he starts, they start playing. And five minutes into the first song, he comes out and starts to play. And her jaw just drops to the floor. She's at the end of the set. She's like, can we stay for another set? Yeah. Because <laughs> people, you know, they say jazz or classical or rock and roll. They think maybe one type right without any understanding that within rock and roll there might be 15 different genres yeah same thing with jazz classical's got at least six that i can think of mm -hmm. you know and then world music forget it you know oh yeah yeah it's it's not it's not you know black or white there's so many shades of gray in music it's unbelievable 
Yeah. And, and by the way, I found the same thing. I went to live in Boston for a while. Same thing there, uh, because Boston has the Berkeley School of Music, which is a world famous music school. Yeah. So you, you not only did you have like, you know, Giles, Jay Giles went there. I remember hearing Jay Giles in some underground club w way before he ever made it big. But we had the same experience. Like we went to see um, uh, Delaney and Bonnie or Bonnie and Delaney and, and Eric Clapton on a Saturday night. And then next afternoon, we heard the birds and Bo Diddley for free in the park, you know? Right. I mean, it was just, it was everywhere you turned. Literally everywhere you turned. That's right. You know, so um, <clears throat> anyway. Just, just a little bit of filler, just to let you know that there's there was more to it than just playing records. It was going to a lot of concerts and seeking these guys out, you know? Sure. Well, I mean, I feel for any music enthusiast, that's part of the experience is going in and in, not just listening at home, but experiencing the music because there's a different energy and vibration and, and life put into it when you're there live. Yeah. And and, and the, thing I, the thing that to me is... <clears throat> most striking um when i told you music communicates music crosses borders it there's no there's no discrimination in music so mm -hmm. to speak so i remember going to see the rolling stones the hollywood bowl i thought rose bowl and there's entire families there's a 10 year olds and their 35 year old dads and their 75 year old grandpas yeah all going to hear the rolling stones that's right. You know, and then <clears throat> their first song back then, they always used to start with Start Me Up, which, you know, 15,000 people are singing Start Me Up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you know, I think you have to get out and you have to experience it live because listening to it on a record I and mean, is is great. But yeah, I wouldn't have missed that Rolling Stones concert for anything in the world. You know what I'm saying? Just because of that whole 15,000 people from all walks of life singing Start Me Up. Yeah. yeah. That's that's the life of music. That's yeah, yeah. You're exactly right. That's how music can change and influence and make a difference to all those people around them. Yeah. So <clears throat> my observation, and this goes back to my experience, my understanding of life, is that music doesn't discriminate most musicians don't discriminate most right uh we mentioned um benny goodman and, and dave rubeck they were civil rights advocates before that term ever came into the lexicon of the language mm -hmm. benny um, good go ahead so, so really fast what i would yeah. like to do if that's okay let's i want to get through a little bit more on your biography because i think oh, you have okay. you have a world worthy uh experience and then this is my opinion, my humble opinion of how great you are. But then I want to get into that because that's that's what really interested me. And I did a little research and got a bit more of an appreciation of who they were as people, not just musicians. Oh, yeah. But so briefly, we'll kind of get this to a good point. Tell me about working as an apprentice sound engineer um, <laughs> and then subsequently your Wayne's World moments. Okay, so I had a <laughs> I had a friend who had a sound business. Um, 
we actually had, he had two or three businesses. I mean, I used to actually help him restore classic Porsches, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did the wax on, wax off while he did the hard work. He had a sound business. And I was a, just a, a genius. He was a failed, frustrated, failed musician. But he was a genius when it came to sound and sound engineering, right? So he said, well, <clears throat> you want to be an apprentice, you can work non-union gigs in and around L.A. So what an apprentice sound engineer does is they set up mic stands and they lay cable and they, and they haul PAs. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I got to work on a TV show, uh, a rock and roll TV show, which was absolutely brilliant because um, you get to listen to these guys during sound check and then during their performances. So, I saw a lot of musicians, but the ones that stood out, obviously, when you hear these names, you'll know why. Uh, a French jazz violinist named Jean-Luc Ponte, mm-hmm. who just, again, one of these mind-blowing experiences. Chuck Berry. Oh, yeah. Chuck Berry live. Just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. Okay. Steely Dan. Remarkable live. And the Temptations, who didn't need any warm-up, didn't need any sound check. I mean, these guys had been singing on street corners since they were eight. I mean, they were just, like, unbelievable. Right. You know? Uh, And, you know, we did street festivals, and we did a wedding where the Isley Brothers were the audience, I mean, were the entertainment, and me and the crew were the only white guys in there. (laughs) It was quite interesting. But because it was music... Nobody cared. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, So one of the things that we did, and this is where we're going to get to my Wayne's World moment. So at this point, I don't have this. I have no celebrity. I mean, you know, know, I've had movie stars at my dinner table and gotten, I actually got drunk with Bill Haley once. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I admire the creativity, but I'm not in awe. So we're doing a Chick Korea charity concert. And it's Chick and Stanley and I can't remember the drummer's name. God, he was just phenomenal. Um, he loved his mic. The way he set up his mics was incredible. And Chick's wife, Gail Moran, and a special guest star that nobody knew who it was. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm working the stage, helping set up the mic stands and rearrange things, blah, 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 blah. And that it, and we prearranged at a designated point in time. Um, Chick gave me a signal, which meant go down and get the guest star and bring him up to the stage, right? So I go, oh, okay, so it's my time. I go and I knock on the door and the door opens. And I look at the guy and I go, do you know who you are? <laughs> Dude, you're Al Jarreau. And he goes, you're right. I am. <laughs> and it was like the only time after, you know, I mean, you know. Yeah. And if you know who Al Jarreau was. Oh, yeah. Just the most phenomenal vocalist. Anyway, I got over it really quick and escorted him to the stage. Uh, and I did not tell anybody else until way after the concert was over. I didn't tell the rest of the crew. Right. <laughs> wow. 
but yeah, I felt like, you know, we are not worthy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) I don't know. Does your audience know Wayne's world? That movie's so old. Uh, You know, my demographic is I think between 20 and 60 years old. So yeah. Uh, And this is a good opportunity for the younger people out there to uh, learn our generation's history and go appreciate Wayne's world. Yeah. It was back when Mike Myers was funny. Yeah. But Dana, Dana Carvey as well. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I liked Alice Cooper's performance, quite frankly. Oh yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Which by the way, if I could mention one thing. Sure. If your generation would like to understand my generation, they need to watch a movie called American Graffiti. Yes. Because even though it took place in Bakersfield, you could just supplant El Paso for Bakersfield, and it was exactly the same. Okay. So just just thought I'd throw that in there. That's good. American Graffiti. Yeah. Good. All right. Ron That's Howard. Good. Ron Howard? Ron Howard produced it. Oh, hey. There you go. That's my oh, homework no, for tonight. Spielberg. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, okay. Good. Excellent. All right, good. That's my homework for tonight. Yeah. Instead of uh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, we're recording this on Thanksgiving. So happy happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Turkey Day. Happy Turkey Day. Well, thank you for giving me that history and your experience. I think yeah. it's, it's something to be appreciated. And I know for my fellow musician friends who I mentioned, we we're going to be talking about these albums and these artists. Every single one of them was very excited and they wanted to hear about your experience with jazz and blues and in the industry. So that really means a lot to me. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. So now let's <clears throat> let's let's talk about who these people were because you mentioned how they were human rights activists. And you know, a note, uh Time Out came in nineteen fifty nine. Yeah. Brown versus the Board of Education was enacted in nineteen fifty four. Yeah. As far as far as, you know, uh, policies go, this was a, a new policy still. You still had, you know, separatist ideas rampant throughout the US. And I can't imagine that black artists were being treated with any sense of equality. Right. No, they weren't. Right. They absolutely were not. Right. Not not that people are still now, but <laughs> I'm sure it was yeah. definitely worse. Yeah. So Tell us about that. Who were these guys? Well, let's take Benny Goodman. So Benny Goodman um, never saw color. He saw talent. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the very first of the big band era to have an integrated band. Okay. Right. He didn't make any big deal of it other than if if a venue would not treat his black musicians the same as his white musicians, he wouldn't play there. Mm -hmm. Period. And when you watch the movie, and again, it's not a particularly good movie, but you're going to see black musicians in there. You'll see Lionel Hampton, a vibraphone player who's just extraordinary. I have two or three of his CDs. Oh, wow. But in the movie, it's just matter of fact. He sees Lionel play and he says, you're in my band. Which is the way it should be. Yeah. You follow? Absolutely. And... um, he broke ground as far as I'm concerned. You know, this is 1938. Okay. Um, this is, I, I, I bring who I bring 
these guys can play. Right. Uh, one of the, one of his uh, um, arrangement guys, um, genius named Bill Scott Heron, <clears throat> who unfortunately was not alive at the time the movie was made. <clears throat> so the that role was portrayed by Sammy Davis Sr. Mm-hmm. Right? So you get the idea. This guy didn't care. He didn't care black, white, brown, green. <clears throat> he didn't care if you were a Protestant, Jewish, Catholic. <clears throat> Could you play? Right. That's all he cared about. Yeah. You know? Exactly. So he he broke ground, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> Brubeck did the same thing. Brubeck was in the army <clears throat> and formed a band, and that's how he got out of combat, in fact, because he started a band. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he had probably the first integrated band in the U.S. Army at the time. Right. And the army was incredibly separatist. In fact, all military was very separatist. But Rubeck, he was the same. It's like he once turned down a gig for CBS television because he found out they weren't going to show his uh, uh, black drummer. Right. He said, yeah, screw you. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... <clears throat> I, I think these guys, I think they broke ground, you know. Absolutely. Um, and I, it's interesting to me that, that no big deal has ever been made of it, and I, I think it should be, you know. I mean, you get you, you get a lot of uh, comment on um, Hank Aaron breaking the color barrier in baseball. But nothing on Lionel Hampton being in the Beanie Goodman band. Right. You know. Um, yeah. And Brubeck's, it was his bassist that was African. His bassist. Right? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. That's right. I'm looking, uh, I'm looking down, I'm looking at this great article, the one I sent you from the National Civil Rights Museum on uh, Dave Brubeck, Jazz Ambassador. Yeah. Uh, for anybody who wants to read it, it's, it's really good. It's enlightening and it exemplifies exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and not even just, <clears throat> I mean, there are other, there are the examples of that. I mean, you mentioned Hank Aaron. Very few people know, and, and nothing is made of it, about a black country singer named Charlie Pride. Mm-hmm. Broke the color barrier. Right. In the 60s. Okay. Yeah. Was Is instilled in the Grand Ole Opry Hall of Fame. That's right. And, and nothing, nothing is made of it. You know? Yeah. And the reason I think is important is because when you get to the arts, people just, they don't, most people don't see color. No, there's, um, gosh, I can't remember the name. There's a punk band out there right now who got flack because they're playing some punk and light metal and a, the lead singer. And I think the majority of the band are black and people give them heat. They're like, why are you not doing rap or something like that? And they're like, because we don't want to do it. We're, and they're incredible musicians. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the areas where I'm now seeing it, so it happened in jazz. It's happened, obviously, in classical music. Um, <clears throat> it's happened in rock and roll. Country and, and bluegrass is sort of way behind. Right. But country is now shifting. You had Darius Rucker, you, you know, Jimmy Lee. I mean, you, now you start to see really good 
black musicians in country. Yeah. I'm starting to see the same thing in bluegrass. Great. Finally. Yeah. You know, uh, that there's, <clears throat> which as it should be, because I don't know how many people understand what a big influence black music had on bluegrass, mm -hmm. specifically the banjo. Oh, absolutely. With the history you gave with it being, was it adapted from the mandolin? No, the mandolin the, the, came from Africa. That's right. It was an African uh, instrument. Okay. Uh, the mandolin came from Italy. The guitar came from Spain. Okay. Um, yeah. I guess the lute, I'm not sure where the lute came from, where Italy too. I'm not sure. Might as well. <clears throat> I, I, don't, I, I, mean, <laughs> I know a little bit about each of those instruments, but not a lot. Yeah. Um, so now we're finally starting to see in, in pretty much all genres of music, um, color barriers going away. Right. You know, which is as it should be. I mean, even, even miles, you know, was like, I mean, he needed a good pianist. He called on Bill Evans, who was just a great white pianist, you know, mm -hmm. right. Or Chick Corea, who's, oh, yeah. you know, Puerto Rican guy, right. Miles didn't care. You can play like nobody. That's right. Oh, I wanted to make a comment. You mentioned Chick. Um, there was a documentary with him uh, before he passed away. And one thing he talked about was how he taught his musicians to play was as communication. You communicate with each other, the bassist to the drummer, or to the, the guitarist or any other rhythm section. And that's that made it make sense on how these freestyle jazz performers can can go on the fly like that because they know how to play off of each other and they signal each other and it's it's a replication of communication yeah it is entirely i mean i will tell you just right along that line i you weren't there unfortunately i as you know i went to the san jose jazz festival for 15 years right mm -hmm. way back i don't know 10 years ago there occasionally was a jam that would happen after the event closed. And because I knew the organizer's brother, he and I got into the jam. <clears throat> and so these guys, all these musicians are coming and going off the stage. And this 15 year old kid that looks like Pugsley from the Adams family <laughs> yeah. gets up and picks up his tenor saxophone and the rest of the band just goes, what? And immediately fall in line. And he does this. He riffs and then he's like, he points off. And, you know, it was just like this beautiful thing. You got these grizzled old 40 and 50 year old jazz players. Yeah. Right. Who smoke and drink too much. Riffing with this 15 year old kid. It was That's just, right. you know. Yeah, which, by the way, I compliment you. I, correct me if I'm wrong. <clears throat> weren't some of your photographs of one of the female blues players we saw used on her website? That's right. Uh, Mia Borders. I still remember that because I follow her on social media. Okay. Uh, she did me the kindness of throwing one of my photographs up. I was low on stage and got her, you know, at a good angle. She was beautiful. So any angle is a good angle for her. Yeah. But yeah, um, you know. That's one area I definitely I'd like to continue is going back and shooting more musicians and getting into that. Because I think if you can capture a musician in the moment, 
it expresses the energy that they're they're putting out. So just along that line, if I may, if I can diverge for a minute, at that particular event that we went to, I don't know if you recall, there was a um, photography show <clears throat> of musicians in the uh, San Jose Museum of Art. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I remember talking to the curator and I showed him some of my pictures. And I said, what's the problem? What's my problem? He says, you're not close enough. Oh. Because I had a button on getting close to the musicians. Right. And he said, no, one of two things. A, they love it. Or B, they don't even know you're there. Oh, and he showed, me, he showed me a black and white photo of <clears throat> the neck of a stand-up bass in the hands of Ray Brown, an incredible jazz guitarist or bass player. And it was just his hands. So obviously the photographer is within three feet. Oh, you know what? That makes sense. Uh, going back to what Sid and I discussed on the wall episode, yeah. where he talks about a musician when they're in it, they're in it. They don't, they don't know the world around them. They're just no. in that parallel universe of I'm playing. Yeah, they're yeah. in the zone. <clears throat> you know, which does lead me to my one other claim to fame as a photographer. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, I had, unfortunately, he passed away this year. I had a really, really good friend named Bob Sullivan, mm -hmm. an incredible musician, drummer. And years ago, he put together in L.A. a thing called the Happiness Band. And he could attract <clears throat> world-class musicians. Right. He was a disciplinarian. You had to follow his rules, right? Yeah. But he could either send out <clears throat> three people playing Hawaiian music or 12-piece dance band playing swing music, anything in between. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it's five o'clock on a Tuesday night, my phone rings and it's Bob. And he says, <clears throat> we're recording a live album tonight. We want you to come shoot the, shoot the, the album cover. Now I, I've never done this. Right. I, I take photographs of mountains and statues and Ferris wheels. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't like photographing people because they move. I said, I, I don't have any lights. He said, oh, I got a couple old garage lights, you know, the kind with the big aluminum oh, yeah. tonal thing and you stick a 60-watt bulb in it. Right. And I said, okay. And just, I don't know why I knew, I grabbed a stepladder. I drive down to the bar. I get there about 5.30. He says, we go live at 7. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. And we're trying to figure, I mean, I'm, all different angles, blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to figure this out. This is in a dark bar. Yeah. <clears throat> and these garage lights are not helping much. And we, we just can't figure it out, right? Right. <clears throat> and and finally, the, 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 the flute player, a guy named Liam, I can't remember Liam's last name, an American-Irish guy who loves salsa. <laughs> that was his special. And he is really good. Right. He says, oh, Let's do this. And he describes what, what the band should do, which is everybody going, you know, yeah, except the harmonica player, Herbie, unbelievable, who's just sitting on a speaker with his harmonica in his hand. And I got the photo, and it's on the CD cover. 
Yeah. And there we go. That's I got for the happiness paid. band. The happiness, I, the happiness jazz band. And I, I got paid in CDs. <laughs> so, well, not a bad thing. <laughs> I lost five pounds during that session. <laughs> <laughs> Going up and down the ladder. And oh, that. unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Yeah. Um, so we are, we've actually had a wonderful conversation and it's been about 50 minutes. Um, so we're going to start wrapping up here. First off, I'd like to thank you and sharing your story and everything. I think it's important for people to understand and appreciate the different genres of music and, and the origins of what they love. Yeah. All right. So you're ready for your deep philosophical questions? Yeah, sure. All right. So we talked about the history of kind of, rock and original american music and we've talked about how things have progressed where do you see the future of music or rock heading from this point forward i i actually don't know and i'm going to tell you uh what i think should happen to make music progress period okay that will answer question number two as well then okay i think we need a lot more crossover mm -hmm. okay i'm going to give you an example i think Two classic examples. You know who Mark Knopfler is? Yes. Right? Do you know that Mark Knopfler did an entire country album with Chet Atkins? I didn't know that. It's incredible. All right. Um, who's the who's the gal? You know who Cindy Lauper is, right? Of course. Everybody thinks Cindy Lauper pop music. Yeah. Cindy Lauper did an incredible blues album. I know that now that you just said it. And an incredible country album. Right. In actual fact, Cindy Lauper could sing a recipe book and I would be salivating like that lost dogs. <laughs> sure. Okay. I don't I don't I, I like to see musicians get out of their box. Sure. Well that's like uh, you mentioned earlier, Darius Rucker. He was Hoodie and the Blowfish. Now yeah. he's Darius Rucker, famous country music artist. Famous country music artist, you know. Yeah. Get out of your box. Right. You know, um I mean Okay, if you if where you make your money and make your living is playing heavy metal, great. But every now and then, you know, sit in with a bluegrass band. Sure. Did you know that? Did you know that Jerry Garcia started as a bluegrass musician? I actually knew that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, get out of your box. Explore other avenues. Explore other genres of music, and I, I think that adds to it. I mean, there's a a really good bluegrass group called the Punch Brothers. And every now and then they'll break out into a Bach concerto. Wow. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, you get people like Nina Simone, who I, I think wrote the best song ever written called Feeling Good. Yeah. Amazing. She's like, if you study Bach, you understand everything. That's right. You know? I like it. So you, so you got to break out. The other thing that has to happen is that we need to put music back in schools. I heard a very sad statistic two weeks ago mm -hmm. that only one in five schools in California has a music department. That's really unfortunate. So how many Miles Davis, how many Les Claypools, how many box are we missing? Mm -hmm. Because they're never given the opportunity to explore that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I know, I know for me, you know, look, I'm not, I'm a great musician, but I'm, I'm not endeavoring to make that my lifelong career necessarily. But I know for me, 
having had some pretty bad accidents growing up, music helped me recover. It was, it was on the same vein of physical therapy or, you know, counseling to like handle issues. It brought me out of any problem I had and allowed me to move beyond, you know, my trauma. Yeah. 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 The other thing I would literally like to see happen is to quit singing syrupy, stupid (laughs) songs about my girlfriend ran away or nobody knows how I feel. Sorry, Tom Petty. Uh, We need more uplifting music and we need more comedy in music. Right. You find a lot of comedy in Western, country and Western. Other than Weird Al Yankovic, you know, or Devo, you don't find it in any of the comedy. We need, you know, everybody should go listen to the Austin Lounge Lizards and specifically it ain't home until it's on box. Right. Listen, you know, anyways, I I want, I want to see more expansion. Get out of your zone, get out of your box, get out of your comfort zone. Excellent. All right. There's a message to all the musicians out there. Spread out. Don't, don't box yourself in. Don't pigeonhole yourself. Right. Then uh, last, last question is if we were to have any major artist on this program, who would you like to see interviewed and to get more into their influences? Uh, God, I don't know if you ever could, but man, if you could get Eric Clapton. Oh, yeah. I mean, that'd be great. Well, I will do this when I post this. I will tag him at least once on all my Instagram posts and see okay. if he responds. Okay. I'm sure he will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He seems like a swell guy. Yeah. He's just, I mean, he's up there. He's not just a demigod, he's a god. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he's incredible. Um, I've listened to a lot of his music back from when he was in was it Cream all the way through now. Cream, Blind Faith, Derek and the Dominoes, and, yeah. and then he's played with everybody. You know? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, incredible. The other well, person you might, if you could, I know this is possible, is Mark Isham. Oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah. I mean, I know people who know people who know him, so it's yeah. it's more likely that I'd be able to get him on (laughs) he's on he's on tiktok i commented on one of his posts and he liked it therefore we are best of friends there you go (laughs) i'll tag him in a couple posts Uh, i follow him a lot cool awesome that would be amazing so then uh to wrap up i want to know if there's any program or activity you would like to shout out or promote before we uh in this conversation well obviously um your stuff right Thank you. I don't know what else to tell you. Let's go to YouTube and look up my friend Bill Boyers, um, Bruce Boyers, who's an incredible, you know, keyboardist, lyricist. Um, Sid's music. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Have you guys ever done a YouTube of uh, Honky Tonk Tractor? We started recording a video for it. I still have part of it on my iPad. Um, okay. We kind of lost some of our traction, but we should go back and do that. <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, the, the other thing, I, the only other thing I can say, and we can do it now, is go hear music live. Don't sit in your bedroom. Yeah, absolutely. Watching, There's, you know, you're right. There's a thriving music scene that people aren't aware of. There's tons of small venues, tons of bars, tons of clubs. You know, and it's not all house and EDM, which is fine in itself. But there's live bands playing 
Yeah. You know, maybe they don't, aren't all great, but go experience them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Get out there and go hear it in a small venue because there's no smoke and no drugs and, <laughs> you know, yeah. moderate amounts of alcohol in a small venue. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, fantastic. Uh, as always, I would like to give a shout out similarly to Mr. Sid's Classroom. Uh, it's, you know, another program I'll be working on shortly, uh, helping to write some content for that. Uh, Owen Raspberry, who did the opening song for this program, check out Teenage Devil Dolls. He just uh, put out a new single with his musical partner, uh, Anthony Coyle. It's fantastic. It was inspired by Star Wars. Um, and of course, Lars Cast, you can find him on Instagram and everywhere. Just look up Lars Cast, L A R Z C A S T. And if you want to contact me, I'm available on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok uh, at The Deep Note. You can also email me at deepnotecast at gmail, or we now have a website at thedeepnote.com. Email me at contact at deepnote.com. Okay. There we go. And to end off, we will say our new catchphrase, and that is rock on with your socks on. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Talk to you later. See ya.